In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning, the kids moved the Magi from the credence table, the east, and brought them to the manger to worship the newborn king, just a few feet away. But imagine that trek in real life. The Magi were astrologers from Persia. So their journey was no easy thing. I imagine with their resources, they could make it as easy as it could be for anybody in that world. But it was still a long way to go and a difficult journey. You can imagine weeks on the trade routes, crossing rivers and deserts, passing through city after city and village after village. I wonder if they talked to people along the way. I expect they may have joined up with caravans or other travelers along the way. And I wonder if they evangelized as they went, telling them what they knew or what they thought they knew had happened in Israel. But eventually they made their way to Judah and then to Jerusalem, because of course that would be where a king was born, one would naturally think. They had seen a star, and some way and somehow, Matthew doesn't give us those details, but some way and somehow, they had discerned from that star that the king of the Jews had been born. And not only that, but that this king of the Jews in particular, this king of the Jews, was unique. That he was worthy of this long journey that he was worthy of the expensive gifts that they brought, that he was worthy of their worship. I mean, they knew the birth of other kings. They knew about the birth of other kings in Israel. They knew who Herod was. But they'd never undertaken long journeys for those kings to honor them. Something about this time was different. I expect it was something about the star. They were astrologers. That was their business to interpret the stars. I suspect that maybe they knew something about Israel's prophets. Since the Jewish exiles had rubbed shoulders with people like the Babylonians and the Persians when they were exiles. But however they knew, the Magi were compelled to do what was pretty much, I think, unthinkable, to make this great trek, to visit, to pay homage to, to worship a foreign king. In the ancient Near East, that meant to worship that king's gods as well. Maybe they even knew that in this kingly baby, Israel's God had somehow taken on flesh. Something like that. We don't know. But they knew something absolutely extraordinary happened, and that absolutely extraordinary thing drove them to worship this king of a conquered nation. A king who wasn't even, for all intents and purposes, yet a king. As our Bible story put it, he was just in a little house in a podunk town outside of the kingly city. But something sent them there to give him homage, to worship him. 
In their world, a, a conquered nation was a loser nation. The king of a conquered nation was a loser king. Herod wasn't really a king. He was a Roman vassal. And that meant that his God was a loser God. Because a real God, he protects his people. He helps them win the battles. So other people would not have taken Israel's king or Israel's God seriously. And yet these men did. This king, in him they recognized something that had never happened before in the history of the world. And these foreigners, these Gentiles, came to see, to confirm, to know, to honor, to give glory to this king and his God. Maybe even having a sense that the king and God in him were both somehow united. It was an epiphany. God made manifest in Jesus. First to his own people, represented by the shepherds we read about at Christmas. And now made manifest to the Gentiles, represented represented by these kings from the east. So we'll come back to the Magi and to our gospel in a bit. But first, listen to St. Paul in our epistle. It's Ephesians 3. Listen to Paul as he writes to his brothers and sisters in Ephesus. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. There's a Gentile theme again. Ephesus was a predominantly Gentile church, and Paul had started it when he visited the city on his second missionary journey. But now he's writing to them some years later as he sits in prison. He's been arrested because he's been proclaiming the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. And he goes on, he says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, for you Gentiles. Remember, Paul's a Jew. In fact, he talks about himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Remember when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. How the mystery was made known to, be my, known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, into the mystery of the Messiah, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery... is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus the Messiah through the gospel. This was, as we say, Paul's thing. This was, for him, the great mystery. Not mystery in the sense that we talk about, say, the sacraments. Not mystery like Sherlock Holmes or Scooby-Doo but mystery in the sense of a great earth-shattering revelation that changes literally everything. You might even call it an epiphany. 
For Paul, the great mystery was the first was, was at first the revelation that this Jesus, whom he had despised and persecuted, that this Jesus actually was the Messiah. But then, when he'd had the chance to work through all the implications of that great truth, then he was confronted by this one. As he says, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus the Messiah through the gospel. don't know what Paul would think of the Magi. He never mentions them, but I expect he would recognize whatever they understood, however limited, however confused it was, those Magi were the first to understand that in Jesus, the Gentiles are to be made fellow heirs with the Jews. Now, most people would have thought that this was not only thoroughly un-Jewish, most of Paul's friends would probably say that it was blasphemous. Unclean Gentile dogs? They can never be co-heirs with the people of God. I mean, there were a few Gentiles who became co-heirs with the people of God, but that was because they went through all the purification rites and they were circumcised and they committed to observing the Torah. They were co-heirs with the people of God because they became part of the people of God by becoming Jews. They weren't really Gentiles anymore. But Paul realized that, in fact, once you get the story of God and Israel straight, it's actually hard to come up with anything more Jewish than this conclusion that the Gentiles actually are, in Jesus, fellow heirs and members of the same body and part of Abraham's family. When you think it through, Paul's saying, this is actually what the story was working towards all along, even though hardly anybody realized it anymore. As he says, as he continues, ministering this truth, this mystery was his calling. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of the Messiah and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Jesus the Messiah our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence to our faith in him. The Jews of Paul's day had got their own story wrong and no longer had any sense that salvation is for the Gentiles. As far as they were concerned, they were God's people. God cared about them. God would deliver them from their oppressors. And God would put them someday back on the top of the heap where they belonged. And he would rain down destruction on all those unclean unclean people of the world. On those people. Salvation was for the Jews, they might have said. And even those first Jewish Christians were still thinking in this vein. Jesus was their Messiah. I mean, there were a few Gentiles who believed... But 
Early on, they became Jews first, more or less, or maybe more. And there were the Samaritans who believed. That was kind of a challenge to this kind of thinking. But until Paul, no one seemed to have this vision of the deliverance of of the salvation of the Gentiles, at least not on any large scale. There's a reason why Jesus came to Paul on the road to Damascus. We have Peter and John and, and, and James talking about do the Gentiles who come and believe, like, how, how do they have to do this? Do they have to be circumcised? How much of the law do they have to follow, if, even if we cut them some slack so they don't have to follow all of it? And then God, through Jesus, came to Paul and called him. And Paul was the right man with all the knowledge, with the right way of thinking. And he went off into the desert and thought it through and came back and said, No. The good news is equally for the Gentiles. And no, they don't have to become Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. But salvation is for the whole world. I think the irony is that today we kind of make the opposite mistake that those very first Jewish believers were making or that the the Jews before the time of Jesus were making. They kept everything for themselves excluded everybody else. We, on the other hand, have so taken the gospel out of that story, we've so dehistoricized it, we've so flattened it out and universalized the story that we've all but forgotten that salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. That's what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. And it ought to ring in our ears, too. Those words ought to remind us of the great story of the God of Israel and his people. And particularly as we observe and celebrate Epiphany. St. Paul writes in today's epistle to explain his unique apostolic ministry to proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. It has been my experience that many Christians have never stopped to consider just how odd, just how weird Paul's ministry would have seemed at the time. We don't stop to think because we've largely removed the gospel from its place in the bigger story, from its place in history. And again, we've flattened it out to communicate its universal nature. The intent there is good. But I'm not sure the way we've done it has been positive. Occasionally, okay, not occasionally, all the time, we need to recall... That even though, as as Jesus says in John's gospel, God so loved the world, it is also true, as he said to that woman in Samaria, salvation is from the Jews. Now, why is that important? Think again of the big story. Out of a world that had lost all knowledge of him, the Lord chose and called Abraham, and from him created a people whom he made holy, and in whose midst he lived, and to whom he made promises. He gave his people his law. He gave them his presence. He made them unique amongst the nations. Jesus was born one of those people. 
the way we somehow flatten out and dehistoricize and decontextualize the gospel, you could almost think, well, Jesus could have been born in Athens, or he could have been born in Rome, or he could have been born over in Persia. But he couldn't. He was the Jewish Messiah. He fulfilled the Jewish law, and he fulfilled the words of the Jewish prophets. He proclaimed good news about a coming kingdom and a coming judgment to the Jews and for Jews as the people whom God had called to be his light in the midst of the darkness of the world. While Gentiles were welcomed when they came to him, Jesus made it clear that his ministry was to his own people. The evangelists, in writing their Gospels, they even lay the blame for Jesus' death with their own people. Now, the Gentiles had a part in it, and that hints that the Gentiles would also eventually have a share in his resurrection. But it was Jesus' own people who betrayed him and who demanded his death. And even in his death by crucifixion, Jesus foreshadows the means of execution that the unrepentant Jewish rebels would face when judgment came a generation later. Jesus' substitutionary death even took the form that his own people would later die. Jesus took the death of his people on himself. So it can't be stressed enough that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, lived and died for the sake of his people, the Jews, and to bring their story to its climax. That's important particularly as we recall the Epiphany, as we celebrate the Epiphany. We can't just skip all of that to get to John's announcement that God so loved the world that he gave his Son. Because when we skip it, when we do that, we end up short-circuiting the story. We leave out most or all of the bits that show us how God in Jesus has been faithful to his promises made under the Old Covenant. When we leave out that whole story, we fail to tell the very parts that we see Jesus fulfilling, the very fulfillment that caused the wise men to travel all that way to see this young king, and that caused the Gentiles to come in droves to the God of Israel. If we leave out that part of the story, we cast a veil over God's glory. It was necessary for Jesus to fulfill the story of his own people because only then would the Gentiles see the faithfulness of the God of Israel. Only then would the Gentiles be drawn to what they saw. They would give him glory. And in the process, they would then be incorporated into the new people of God by faith. And in this too, we see that the means by which the Gentiles are incorporated into this new people, this new Israel, fulfills the message of Israel's prophets and gives glory to God. Now, it's certainly true that even uh, when we do our worst at dehistoricizing and flattening out the gospel, the gospel is powerful and God's grace is amazing and millions upon millions of people still come to Jesus as Lord. 
But it's also true that communicating the gospel within its context communicates the faithfulness of God as the basis for our own faith, I think, with much greater depth, and it builds a much firmer foundation. Whereas so much that passes today for evangelism and Christian faith is really very subjective. We try to draw people to Jesus by appealing to their needs and their wants, and there's a place for that. But what we see in Paul's ministry and what we see especially in Revelation is the Gentile nations being drawn to the God of Israel by the revelation of his glory in Jesus the Messiah. They don't come first and foremost because God offers them something they want or something they need. They come because in Jesus this God is revealed who is absolutely different than any God or any king they have ever known in their own world. And so they come and give him glory because they can't not do it. Again, Christians today need to understand just how weird Paul's ministry would have seemed in his day to his own people, even at first to the other apostles. Again, most people believed that the good news about the Jewish Messiah was for their fellow Jews. And they would even think, not only was it not for the Gentiles, but it wouldn't even interest the Gentiles. But Jesus radically changed what it meant to be be the people of God. But in many respects, it was not until St. Paul came back from his wilderness sojourn that this dramatic change was really grasped by the fledgling church and by his fellow apostles. I mean, it's not that Israel's ministry to the Gentiles wasn't there all along. The Lord set Israel apart before the watching nations. She was to be his witness. Through her, he would restore and reconcile humanity to himself. But as Paul points out in our epistle, this this mystery ended up being mostly lost on his own people, on previous generations. And yet, there it was from the beginning, all the way back in Abraham's day. If anybody was really paying close attention... It was already there that the Lord's intent was one day to bring the Gentiles into this family and to make them fellow heirs with those who were children by birth. He says this truth has been revealed by the Spirit to the prophets of old and and in the same way had been revealed to the apostles and it took time for them to parse it all out. And to Paul it was a personal commission to proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. And Paul adds here that this mission is not just to ordinary people. It's not just a matter of personal piety. As Gentile believers come into their inheritance in the Messiah, the church becomes both a witness and a challenge to the gods and kings of the Gentile world. This diverse body of Jews and Gentiles come together, living in unity, the inheritance given them by Jesus This community, this church, announces that he is Lord and that a new age is breaking in. Just as was the case with Israel, the lords of the earth can submit in faith to the lordship of Jesus, or they can face the judgment to come. How often do we think of the gospel in those terms? I think we always need to think of the gospel in those terms, but I don't think we do. That you and I, and not just us as individuals, but the church, are to witness God through Jesus in such a way 
that the people out in the world can't help but come and give him glory. Because what we reveal is a God who is unlike, who is infinitely greater than the gods that everyone out there worships. Whether that's money or sex, politics or war, what have you. Our witness is to a God who is infinitely greater, infinitely more worthy of our glory and our worship. So now we turn back to the gospel, Matthew chapter 2. And it it really dovetails with with what Paul has written in his epistle. Here's the truth that Paul writes, and it's manifest for the first time in the story of Jesus. After Jesus was born, Matthew writes, in Bethlehem of Judea in those days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked the king, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I always wonder, did they go straight to the palace? Did they assume everybody in Israel knew along the way? Were they asking people, have you seen the king yet? Have you seen the king yet? And if that was the case, imagine their consternation. Nobody seemed to know about this king. Maybe someone would say, oh, the prophets talked about that, but we haven't seen it yet. And maybe they went through Jerusalem asking, asking, where's the king? Where's the king? And everybody just scratches their head and said, well, there's Herod. Like, no, that's not him. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And they said, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. Herod should have known better. He knew enough of his Bible to be afraid, but not enough to know the prophecies. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word so that I may come and worship him too. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, and they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. St. Luke recalls the events of the night Jesus was born, and he puts our attention on the shepherds visiting one of their own, one who will follow in the footsteps of of David as both king and shepherd. St. Matthew tells us about Jesus' birth in passing, and then he puts the emphasis on Jesus as the king. Magi, these astrologers from an eastern land, they've seen a heavenly sign, and they've recognized it as a herald of the birth of a king in Israel. And presumably not just a king, but the king. And so they want to pay him homage and give him gifts. Something about what they saw in that star said, this is nothing like what anyone has seen before. 
I mean, there had been no star heralding Herod's birth, presumably. So naturally, they look for the king of of the Jews in Jerusalem. Herod knows nothing about the birth of a king. He was politically astute enough to recognize the political nature of the Magi's claim, and he was paranoid enough to do something about it. Matthew makes it clear that if Jesus is indeed the king, then Herod obviously is not. Again, Matthew emphasizes the kingship of Jesus in the report of the priests to Herod. They, they, they go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and it's not clear if this is their paraphrase or Matthew's paraphrase, um, but they point Herod to Bethlehem. And yet, in the paraphrase, there's again this important bit of context. Micah speaks not of a universal king per se, but of one who will be king over Israel. This king will shepherd the Lord's flock. There's a bit from verse 4 that the priests add into their paraphrase of verse 2. The Messiah is the king of Israel. It is only once Micah has established that the Messiah will be king over Israel that he then goes on to tell us that this king, in verse 4, shall be great to the ends of the earth. I can only think of Solomon was maybe, you could say, was great to the ends of the earth. Both the Magi and the priests highlight Jesus' kingship specifically over Israel. Again, salvation is from the Jews. It is because Jesus is king of Israel, in fulfillment of the Lord's promises through the prophets, his promises to David. It's only because of that that the good news about him can then go out to the Gentiles. The Magi are the first, and they foreshadow the future. Matthew bookends his gospel with Gentiles. Here at the beginning, the Magi come at Jesus' birth. Gentiles come to worship a very uniquely Jewish king and to give him glory. And at the end of the gospel, Matthew records the commissioning of the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. The good news is only good news to the Gentiles because it reveals that the God of Israel is worthy of being given glory because he is unlike the gods that they know. The God of Israel does what he says. The God of Israel fulfills his promises. Think again of Revelation and how we see there the nations, the nations that worship the beast, the nations that frolicked with the great prostitute, what they discovered in the downfall of the beast, that the kings and gods of this world can't hold a candle to the God of Israel revealed in Jesus. They can't hold a candle to his power and might, and most importantly, to his faithfulness. Specifically, he fulfills his promises to his people in Jesus. And it is this faithfulness, just as much as the amazing report of Jesus risen from the dead and the defeat of his enemies... It is this report, this evidence of the faithfulness of the the God of Israel that then draws the Gentiles to give glory to him and to submit in faith to Jesus, the King of the Jews. And of course, that then carries ramifications for Caesar and all the other rulers and gods of this age, just like it did for Herod. This is what Paul stresses in the final verses of our epistle. Their days are numbered. Because as the royal summons to the King Jesus goes out, Jesus shall be great to the ends of the earth. 
Brothers and sisters, the gospel about Jesus is good news because it reveals the faithfulness of God. It's good news because it tells us so much more about forgiveness, about life, about resurrection, about God through Jesus and the cross setting this broken creation to rights. But above everything else, the gospel about Jesus is good news because it reveals the faithfulness of God. Because the gods of the Gentiles said things. The gods of the Gentiles made promises. The kings of the Gentiles said things, did things, and made promises. Sometimes they did amazing things, like Alexander conquering most of the known world. And then he died, and it went into chaos. Those gods of the pagans would make promises, and they wouldn't keep them. But the good news about Jesus reveals that the God of Israel does what he says, and in that he is worthy of glory. And that's the reason for us to trust him. It's the reason for us to give our allegiance to him, to worship him and to give him glory, and to proclaim his good news to the rest of the world. So I want to close with the collect again for today because I think it gives us a wonderful comparison between the Magi and ourselves. They were drawn to Jesus by sight. We are drawn by faith. And so we look forward in hope to the day on which we too will see his majesty on full display. It's the prayer of Gentiles who have seen the glory of the God of Israel revealed in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and Messiah. It is a thanksgiving for what God has done in Jesus, creating a new Israel in which the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and it looks forward in hope to the day in which Jesus will set this whole creation to rights and to be revealed in all his glory as both, as both king and as God. Let's pray. O God, who by the leading of a star manifested your only Son to the peoples of the earth, Mercifully grant that we who know you now by faith may at last behold your glory face to face. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.